As we prepare to hear God's word from the gospel according to Luke, let me open by saying there's good news and bad news as the old story goes. The good news is that churches who follow the liturgical calendar, that would be St. Simon's for one, that begins the year with Advent, Christmas time, Epiphany, Lent, Easter time, Pentecost, and ordinary time, those churches end the church year with Christ the King Sunday. That would be for us next Sunday. I'm grateful for this church that it has the insight to have our stewardship Sunday when we come bringing our commitments on the same day as Christ the King. That's the day that we celebrate Christ sitting on the throne of all the cosmic reality of God's creation. When that happens, we do not know, but we celebrate it still. The bad news is that this passage today is the forecast of the suffering and destruction and hurt that will take place before God sits on the throne. They seem to go hand in hand. Hear now the word as it comes to us from Luke 21 verses 5 through 19. Some of Jesus' disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they ask, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to happen? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this even, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and put you in prison and you will be brought before kings and governors and on all account and all on account of my name. So then you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and sisters and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death even. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm then, and you will win life. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. 
We pray, O oh God, for your spirit to open us to an understanding of this word. Where we might come to see your presence with us in ways we do not expect. In Christ's name, amen. And just in this morning's passage, Jesus is talking to his disciples about the day of the Lord. It was embedded in all Jewish Hebrew understanding of who God was and who they were. The Jews saw life, the world, in two ages. The present time, which was riddled with sin and evil, certainly not perfect, and the future age to come when the Messiah would come again and bring God's new age of Jewish supremacy. Before then, the Messiah first has to come and bring the day of the Lord, or God does. The day of the Lord is an apocalyptic time of terrible hardship and darkness, cosmic destruction and upheaval, which would only serve as the birth pangs of the new age to come. On the day of the Lord, the sun would be covered and the moon too and the stars and there would be no more light. Everything would be dark and all the world that we know would be shattered. Isaiah 13, 9 points to it. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and he shall destroy the sinners out of it. In Jesus' time, everybody knew about the day of the Lord. So what Jesus reminds his disciples after hearing them walk through the temple and gloat about what a magnificent structure it was, insinuating how blessed they were because we wouldn't have this magnificent temple unless God blessed us, the porches and cloisters had 14-foot-high white marble columns, each one carved out of a rock. The most fav famous offering symbol was grapevine made out of solid gold with the grape clusters themselves, full of grape clusters themselves as high as I am, solid gold. The temple of the the temple front was covered with deep plated gold that reflected the sun so brightly that you could not look at it when the sun was high. But Jesus, after walking through the temple with his disciples, tells them the time will come when not one stone will be left upon another and they will all be thrown down in a heap. Astonished. The disciples asked, when will this be? Not when you think, Jesus said. Watch out that you are not deceived by all the shysters who come proclaiming the end of the world. Don't fall for it. When things are looking bad, nations against nations, earthquakes, hurricanes, signs from, don't, don't give in to it. Don't despair. And more personally still, he said, 
when because of me you will be arrested and taken to prison and persecute, make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves for I will be with you and I will give you words and wisdom to make your case. Even when you feel betrayed by your family, when everyone hates you because of me, do not despair. Not a hair of your proverbial head will perish. Instead, stand firm and win new life. And then just as Jesus predicted in AD 70, before Luke wrote his gospel, at the hands of the Roman legions, bringing terror and destruction to the people of Jerusalem, they tore it all down stone by stone. It was reported that the Jewish people even had to resort to cannibalism to survive. The Jewish historian Josephus said a million people perished. 97,000 more were carried away as slaves. There was no more Jerusalem. There was no more temple thought to be the very presence of God. God's presence in the Holy of Holies. And now nothing exists anymore. Where had God gone? This literature is throughout the Bible and the Old Testament and the New. It's called apocalyptic literature. All four Gospels have a chapter devoted to it. Daniel in the book Old Testament is that kind of literature, apocalyptic. The book of Revelation, as you well know, is an apocalyptic book. It even ends the Bible with this apocalyptic forwardness. And it's evident throughout the genre of what it means to have faith in Jesus' day. It produced then and even more now a whole number of people who predict when that end time will be. It's coming. I've looked through Revelation and I've deciphered it. I know what it says. It's coming soon. In the meantime, send money to the church so we can build a bigger wing on the side. Catch the irony of that? Jesus said, do not fall for those doomsayers. As far back as I can remember, and this will date me, there have been plenty of them selling books. Tim and Beverly LaHaye, Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth, and all the other doomsayer preachers who've made a pretty good living predicting the end of the world. But my personal view about this kind of literature is that we need be very careful with it, for it tends to attract a whole lot of people who are deeply, deeply hurting and suffering. And Jesus, I think, and I believe, thinks that this kind of literature, when overused, does more harm than good. People actually spend money on it, or worse, sell everything they own to go to some mountaintop for harmonic conversion or whatever the next rapture moment is going to be and then when it doesn't come they are not only left without any material thing they're left without their God for the temple that they had built their God on the expectation that he was coming on January the 13th 2003 
no longer happened, what are they left with but a loss of faith and an undermining of the biblical text? They feel taken for a ride. And even worse, those who don't believe in God stand back and watch this in scorn and laugh. But golly, folks, there are so many hurting and suffering people in the world. I can understand how you can be drawn to this possibility. I can understand the need for hoping that Jesus will come again in the present age and bring it to an end, and in that coming, our suffering will end too. I can understand hoping that I will be raptured up into heaven and avoid the very suffering that I'm in the midst of. I was wandering around in a little antique store. I don't know, I was 30 minutes before a lunch appointment, and just looking around at the books and so forth, and um, just myself and the owner until another lady came in who was a friend of the owner's, and they began to chat, and I listened in a little bit. And um, the, the friend was saying, how's your husband? He's been in our prayers. I know he's been fighting uh, that terrible cancer for a long time. How's he doing? And the owner said, um, thank you for your prayers. I'm praying too. Uh, but I, I have to say that I'm not sure that he's going to be made well. And so now I am praying for the rapture. I'm praying that the rapture will come before my husband dies. I get that. Sometimes all you have left is to hide behind tomorrow's hope for the end of the world. When Luke wrote his gospel, all that Jesus predicted had indeed come true. The temple was destroyed. The followers of Jesus were scapegoated and persecuted by the Romans and by the Jewish people who were left. Still, Luke knew that the time had not come for the coming of Jesus and the day of the Lord. And, and this was clear for him that those people who expected it were in a major crisis of faith. If this destruction isn't the sign... What is it? Why hasn't he come? Where is he? And Jesus says, don't fall for anybody who claims to know the answers to that. Instead, he says, when facing suffering and hurt and loss and turmoil and even death, do not give hope. He may not make us well. He may not fix it. He may not come with a miracle. He may not come in the way that we want. But he will come and be with us, he says. Not only that, but he will give us the words to say and the wisdom to live and understand how to carry on through life in the midst of loss and grief and suffering. I will give you assurance that not even a hair on your soul's heads will be harmed or damaged, is the promise. Stand firm. If I can be personal, and I don't like to be too personal up here because it becomes more about me than the gospel. So with that disclaimer, 
Every year I go on a fishing trip in October for, for Bull Red Drum on Baldhead Island. Cape Fear is the beginning of Baldhead right beside it with a bunch of old guys like me and their sons. Every year I experience a presence of God that takes my breath away and surprises me in ways I'd never expected. This year was no exception. This year it came on Tuesday night. I got there Sunday and I was in charge of cooking dinner for 20 or so of men and, and young men. And I did my duty and it was uh, while the men came and were cleaning up in the kitchen and, and the other men went down into the garage to get ready for the next fishing trip that night, I went out on the porch by myself and began to reflect how much I love this place and how much I appreciate being asked and helping cook and so forth. I was practicing gratitude and all of a sudden my phone dings and I look at and it's from daughter of Megan. Megan is a 38 year old oldest daughter who's in graduate school of psychology at Georgia State. And I open it and she says, thought you might wanna see this. And it's a, it's a magazine from Georgia State University in Atlanta where Megan attends. And in it was, uh, the magazine was earmarked with this one big uh, article about my daughter, Megan. And uh, it talks about her uh, excellence, getting her PhD in psychology, some of the awards she's won and so forth. And I'm just sitting there standing, you know, Mr. Proud and how good is that, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, as I'm reading it, um, I start reading Megan's quote in the magazine. And she says, when she was 16, most, uh, when most teens are thinking about prom plans for life after graduation, this is the narrator, Megan's mother was killed in a car accident. It was sudden and traumatic, Megan said, but I, uh, but I got through this uh, and by having this amazing youth group that provided me with support and community and connection. Thanks to the church, I was able to get through it and persevere. One of our unbelievable saints is here in worship today from that church. Since that article, um, Megan has flourished. The article ends up quoting her, this experience contributes greatly to my passion for mentorship of other women and minorities in pursuing the seemingly impossible. That was the moment. My pride of my daughter went into deep, tearful gratitude. Let me take you back. When she was 16, she was driving a Ford Explorer on 285 going to Six Flags with Nancy, our, her mother, my first wife, sitting in the right seat, and Amanda, second daughter, uh, and her good friend Emma in the back seat, and our dog Yates in the, in the part of the cargo place. That's another story. And Megan's in the second lane from the right, and on the fourth lane from the right, there's a big white van. They call it a painter's van. It must have had uh, and Megan was just going along at like 60 miles an hour and this van saw an exit on Northside Drive and shot in front of Megan 
forcing her to swerve the car to avoid the accident. There were 20 witnesses who saw the accident and all said the same thing. She made a normal defensive maneuver. We could not believe that that Ford Explorer in the old days, remember the Firestone tires, literally bolted up in the air and came down on the roof where Nancy was sitting and she was brain dead at the scene. Amanda, second daughter, says that later, much, much later, she said, I was so worried uh, about mom, but I was also worried about Megan driving the car. She was screaming, I kill my mother. I was scared to death. I was scared that both girls, but especially Megan, would be so hurt and lost and guilty, feeling guilt for that, that she would be forever carrying that burden. I had no idea what she would be able to face and grow up with. And that was my prayer. Oh God, give me something to say to them. Three days after the accident, I asked Megan to get back on the horse and go buy some bread and milk. And she and Amanda got in her car and I think Megan left the parking brake on or something and, and Amanda uh, started screaming. Amanda was 14 and Megan was 16. Amanda started screaming at her uh, and Megan feeling defensive, uh, slammed the car shut, got out the door. She and Amanda are screaming F-bombs at each other as loud as you can hear all over the neighborhood. Uh, I'm in my office, I can hear it all. They storm into my office and I'm at my desk and I see all this and they're still going after each other. And this was God's presence. I knew nothing else to do but to stand up and to walk over to Megan and say, I can't fix it. At which point she started crying. I started crying. Amanda was kind of like, ah. Oh. And Megan and I embraced, and Amanda's a little more reticent with that kind of emotional presence, not now, but she was then. And, and Megan and I sort of saddled our way into the bathroom around the corner where we sat down in front of the toilet because that was the closest place I knew we had toilet paper for Kleenex. And for at least 30 minutes, we cried so hard, excuse me, snot was coming out of our noses. We couldn't catch our breath. We just held each other and cried. And I look back on that as exactly what Jesus has promised in this story. I couldn't fix it and neither could Jesus. God didn't cause it. God didn't stop it. But God was present and would be present in and through it. And somehow, by God's grace, me being able to be with Megan as a father who cannot fix it was so full of grace that it, it just broke us. All we could do was cry for grief, but also for thanksgiving. I worried to death about him. We would gather on our bed every night and I would ask us to have a prayer and we'd pray thanks for God getting us through the day and God, please get us through tomorrow. Every single day we did that for months. 
What got me through it was that I had this story. I remembered this story. These words from Jesus about not losing hope in the face of suffering and hardship, even if it feels apocalyptic. What got me through it is remembering this story, I found strength. It wasn't about me. I prayed and I told them, believe this, this is probably the worst event in your life. Do not lose hope that God will take this event of tragedy and turn it into something redemptive and good. Just do not lose hope that God will use this in your life for something good. Every day I told them that. When I opened Megan's email, text, and read the article, that to me was 21 years later of the assurance that God had moved and acted in Megan's life, just as God has moved and acted in Amanda's life, bringing her two lovely children, and God has acted and moved in my life, bringing me together with Anita. 20 years in next year. God does not want us to hide behind thinking we will be bailed out of our suffering tomorrow. But God is willing to and has and will be in that place of suffering with us in the darkness. And from that and through that, we are able not to give up and to persevere, knowing that, yes, indeed, God is with us. Stand firm, and I will give you life, he promises. Claim that story in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, having heard the good news that God's grace and God's hope are abundant both in times of deep grief and overwhelming joy, let us respond in gratitude as the plates are passed and as the offering is shared. <laughs>